You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. It's January 18th, 2016, and we are your co-hosts, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Hello. Burns. And from a lightly covered, snowy Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Silbury Village, we are Future Theater Live on PSN Radio and on the Dark Matter Digital Network. And so, hello to everybody. Our producer is Angel Espino. Hello, Angel. Hello. Say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. And our guest it is tonight freezing is... here in Florida. Also. Ah, what's the temperature in freezing Florida? Seventy-eight degrees. Oh, oh holy mackerel! <laughs> the icicles are forming now on all the equipment. Somebody get a so heater many... and set it up. I have so many bundles of clothes on right now. Like I got things all over me. It's crazy. No, it's you know, like, now it's... that now that you've had an ankle injury for the mm. rest of your life, when you get cold, it'll it's ache. It's gonna hurt. Oh yeah, it's gonna hurt. The, Actually, there's the a, a couple. There's a couple parts of my leg that hurts because I've had a broken bone in the leg before. When right. it gets really cold, I've always had that experience. So now it's throughout my entire right leg. Yay! Well, I, but, I have said and I say it again: growing old, old is not for the. It's not for the weak. No. Okay, quick question. None. Um do, do either of you, well, I know Bill doesn't because I've been researching it for the both of us. But do you, Angel, know anything about the exercise that you see old people in? Park's always doing. It's sort of Qigong. Well, it's Tai Chi. Tai Chi, tai chi yeah. but I think... Actually, we'll ask Robert Morningstar. That's what we will do. Because I believe he's an expert at this. And that's who I'm yes. confusing. I think I think when he was on your show, he was talking about this. But I see people, very old people doing this. And mm-hmm. it is so stupid. I tried hmm. going on YouTube to learn about it. But it's sort of like, pretend you have an invisible basketball. Well... I don't get the invisible basketball. I don't get <laughs> any of it. Builds, it builds strength and breathing because you have to breathe. The whole thing is breathing. You know, I think um, there was a famous, fabulous man named Satchel Page. He was one of the greatest ball players Pitcher, who ever yeah. lived, Satchel yep. Page. And um, I don't have it in front of me, but he has these little eight rules of – maybe I do have it in front of me – eight rules of living. Maybe I finally wised up and copied it out because it's so – let's just see. Satchel. I probably don't, but maybe I do. I don't think I do. That's so bad. It's so stupid. Nope. Um, actually, I know where it is, though. I'm going to go there. Nope. Okay. He suggested that one of the things you should do is you should get up and sort of jingle yourself around every once in a while. That's what you do for exercise. You kind of jingle yourself around a bit. Just jingle around a bit. Just and don't it do it too much because you can go sense. blind. Well, no, but it makes a lot of sense. You just sort of, um, yeah, Lou Sheehan, thank you, Lou. Um, mm. Don't look back. They may be gaining on you. But, if you, it, you know, I actually put it on my website, and that's why I don't feel like going and looking for it. I, I, will, I will become better at all these websites soon. But his eight rules or so of living, and he lived to be a ripe old age, but he was one of the most magnificent ball players. I believe he was a pitcher? Yep. Yeah, a pitcher, yep. Picture. And supposedly he threw what people would call aspirins because they, 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 were, they would come at you so small and so fast. Yep. Yeah. Satchel and he would page. give you a anyway. headache every time he would strike you out. Like, yeah. How do you get me again? Yeah. He was a good pitcher. 
Yeah. So anyway, so that's what I, I, I bring nothing to the table except, you know, um, my favorite forum on the planet, on the internet, my only forum, the only forum I look at is Bill Gab, and mm-hmm. it's been going a little crazy for the last week or so, actually. Has since, it really? Um, well, yeah, um, you know, there, there's, there's drama always. Always, but, yep, yep. Yep. And so they're, you know, the Bill Gabbers are wringing their hands saying, will Art Bell ever come back? And so that's basically where it is right now. And um, we used to be the lead-in for Art Bell, and that's why we are nostalgic for those days, which were only just a few, less than a month ago. No, nope, yep, yep. a month. I think he left a month ago. Oh, oh, oh. We're so <laughs> sad. But we are. And so everybody, everybody that was on the network is now kind of trying to say, okay, we've kind of been so focused on Art Bell coming back and helping promote that we're kind of now looking around saying, okay, now what? And that's where we are, I say. And it's depressing because uh, Bill was just on Monday um, on um, the show, and the show is just not – well, Heather Wade is the, the hostess, and um, she had Bill on, and it was a wonderful show, I thought. But a lot of people just kind of walked away in disgust saying, no art, Bell, no show. Anyway, I'm digging mm. myself into a hole that's right, because there's nothing you can say. That's that's what people said. It's a shame yeah. because nobody's really listening to what she's doing, which is pretty good. So um, my thought is that you just don't listen to the critics. You just do the show you, the way you want to do the show with the guests you want to have and just keep plugging away. Well, I wanted to give a shout-out to Wisefrog because he's in one of our little chats here on Skype. Yeah, he um, is. You guys have created a, a sketch, a, a sketch type. Snapchat. Um, That's a tough yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you go to it by, how do you get to it? You go to psn-radio.com, and then you click on where it says listen and chat live. You hover over it. It'll drop down and just click on Skype. And okay. And then right Wise there. Frog um, is a guy, I, I know we will have him on the show. I'm kind of being coy with him a bit because he has an, a story that's so amazing. You have to be coy to see if his story holds up. But basically, he has his own show. Um, and I can't give a plug because I don't – I'm going to have to get a link. But he also has um, a little chat for our show here as well. And uh, he should contact you, Angel, I think, and you could put that link probably yep. up on the site, right? Yep, yep it's yeah, I could. It's like the swamp. It's called like the swamp because he's the frog. Mm-hmm. He's the frog, right. right. He's the frog. And so, you know, but but – it's fascinating, all these little fomenting cesspools, if you will, of, of thoughts churning around. There's so many of them for anything you're interested in. And I think that's the fun of the Internet right now is to figure out where you want to play. Okay. I don't play games, and I guess I have to find my fun in other ways because I'm not a gamer. Okay. Okay. Uh, so when you when many people when they're on the internet and they're not working they're literally on a game right 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 yeah and uh, since or I don't watching play a games, movie or something like that yeah and I don't watch movies on here either I watch movies on the big screen for the fun of it Likes. yeah oh my goodness <laughs> yeah my goodness. by the way I was I was um, at Walmart a couple of days ago on Sunday actually and uh, I saw a Roku TV 32 inch for 178 dollars what that's yeah. incredible. Wait, was it a, a flat monitor? Flat monitor, Roku TV monitor. Lovely. Yeah, you can use it for computer. Well, I, for, I'm purchasing it, by the way, this week. I love Roku. Roku is a really good company. And, and since you're going to purchase it, look into the Roku developer situation when you've got some free time. Um, <laughs> Sometime in Olive. 2025, I'll, yeah, I'll look talk into to it. Olive. I, I, I tried to get Danny to get in touch with Olive and, and um, set up a... Um, 
You can set it up as PSN. You can set it up as Super Media. You can no, set it up PSN. as whatever. Anyway, um, yeah. But I have to tell you, oh, my goodness, talk about fans. Um, I am also kind of a tiny little fan of the X-Files return. And did you see oh, the yeah. trailer? Oh, my God, so good. Oh, Masterpiece yeah. of a trailer. Are you kidding me? I, I well, to, why it, do you say that? It, it was funny. I, I got, like, goosebumps watching that trailer. It, 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 it almost felt... And, and, the, and I'm being serious. It almost felt like when I watched for the first time the Star Wars trailer. Like, oh. I got that excited over it. Now, I'm a huge X-Files fan. I mean, that's my favorite TV show ever. Ah. And his, yeah. Like, it, to me, it's X-Files 24 and, uh, I don't know, Sliders, maybe number well, three. Well, we've never seen 24, and we're just coming off of a Blue Bloods binge. We're running out of programs. So maybe we should try 24. And yeah. I'll put Breaking Bad like a, Breaking Bad would be like my fourth favorite show. Okay, so tell and me Dexter um, Five. There we go. That's my why, my top five. Yeah, why did you like the trailer? It just it had like a real nostalgic feel to it from all the characters they showcased, like the cigarette smoking man, yeah. which everybody thought he was dead, right? You know, that, that, yeah, that's right, mystery. right. There's a the big mystery when they killed him. Right. So how did he survive? Uh, yeah. And just seeing Mulder and Scully again on on TV, that's going to be amazing. Look, X Files, the movies are great, but that's that concept is really great for TV. Yeah. The fact that yeah. they're actually bringing the X Files back, not only the show for a miniseries, but within the show, they're reviving the actual program within the FBI, the X Files. It's actually yes, coming back. I saw that. Which is that's, great. That yeah. leads for possibly a spinoff later on in the future, or more TV shows. Yeah. So I mean, that's beautiful. And not only that, I love the fact that they're really modernizing the mythology. With it's not only about the, the UFOs state. and stuff. Now it's about the police state. It's I more about that. what's really going on. Yeah, the, Chris Carter is an amazing writer, and he he's nailing it. I mean, from what I've read of what the the concept for the miniseries is, it, he's going to nail it out of the park. I mean, it's well, supposedly there has been a small fan group. Uh, mm-hmm. It was screened by, I believe, Vanity Fair for a small fan group, and oh, I no don't kidding. remember how the, whether they loved it or hated it. But I I wanted to ask you. What I thought was cool was that they are treating Mulder, I hope, the way that a character like Longmire would be treated. He's a little long in the tooth now. He's all ravaged by time, and he's just kind of getting up again and saying, I'm going to go back. So he's got some years on him, and I Mm -hmm. think that – I hope they're working that angle instead of just trying to make it look like he's as cute as he was, isn't he, folks? Which I think (laughs) is – you know. Um, And then uh, with Scully – uh, uh, the actress. She's has as been cute in, as she as ever was. Yeah. Well, she's been in so many things, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, she will probably be sort of a modern day Emma Peel by the time this little bit is over. And mm. I would assume is this this is Netflix, isn't it? That's that's no, Fox this is Fox. Else? No, this is Fox. No, it's Fox. Okay. Yeah, Fox. Yeah. Okay, because the network is so much slower now than these little upstart new things. So if it were Netflix, they could already be. You know, signing up for the next six issues or whatever because they well, seem to run it. I, I'm, I'm happy that. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. they're doing it on Fox and not doing it on Netflix because, you know, it, yeah, while well, you have all the episodes there at once and it's like a one long movie. Oh, wait. We're not going to get them all at once, are we? No. I like that. But I like Eek. this better because you could have that anticipation of watching next week's episode. Uh, it's only six know. episodes. It's a miniseries. So it's not like we're waiting like a year to see the whole thing. No, how so many episodes are there? Six. Six episodes, yeah. But oh, see, th- this is like them testing the waters. If it does yeah. really well, believe me, there's going to be more episodes and maybe a yeah. full season. 
well, they did you know, the same thing they, with 24. Um, and by the way, not to cut you off, Nancy, sorry. Yeah. Uh, they did the same thing with 24. They brought it back as a miniseries. And it did so well, even though uh, Jack Bauer, you know, ended up, uh, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but let's just say he ended up in custody somewhere. Um, wait, 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 wait. How did it start out, 24, originally? With Jack Bauer. Well, it's, uh, 24 is about the uh, counterterrorist unit. And, okay, so uh, it's a series on TV? It's a series. Yeah, it's a TV series. And Kiefer Sutherland plays Jack Bauer. He's like the main guy in the whole series. Okay. Uh, the last, uh, you know, season, they went away for a few years, and then they came back and did a mini, like, like mini series type of thing also. And that did really well, and they just announced now they're going to actually do a full series without Jack Bauer. They greenlit the entire series okay. of 24 okay. without him as the main star because his character got, you know, taken into custody in the last episode, and they're going to hold him there for a while. So and that's actually exciting because now we get to see other players in that universe, and it's going to revolve with, you know, Jack Barr is going to kind of be the MacGuffin where they're going to probably try to figure a way to how to save him, you know, until the end of the season, the next season. But he's going to play a big part in, in the going on of what's going on with 24 without actually being there. But isn't Which 24 cool. the, the show that pretty much created this whole torture porn thing in which no. you've got the, a room in which a guy is in a chair and he's sweating and bleeding and no no end to trouble is going to happen for him and we're supposed to just use him as a plot device. I, I, I despise that so much. I feel... I just feel the human humans shouldn't be looking at that and becoming desensitized to that. That should be the most horrific thing. No, um, no. They, they, well, I mean, there there was interrogation, and so that's <laughs> in every every police show. You're going to have something like that. Yeah, but I understand so, I mean, that normal. 24 is the one that kind of perfected it. Was 24 is the original premise that it's one 24 hour day? Right. Is the entire series is a one 24 hour day? Okay, now do that. Does that mean there's only 24 episodes and then they they run out of day? Is like each no, there's, episode there's, an hour? You know, e- yeah, exactly. Each episode is an hour of the day, and it, literally it's on the exact hour of the day. So by the begin, the, it'll start like say nine in the morning, and it'll end up the next day, you know, after 24 hours, and that'll be the full season. So what happens is in between, like every other season or every season, is like two years apart or three years apart. So it's like one day in the life of these people. Well, I do not understand, series. but that's okay. It's an awesome concept. It really is. Yeah, it's a good concept. We'll have to check yep. it out. We'll have to check it out because we are I cannot we're fast believe running out of stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. You, no, you're going to get so hooked. I'll tell you this much. Every single person that I've told you know to check out 24 has mm-hmm. gotten absolutely hooked. Every mm-hmm. single person. Yeah. Not one exception. <laughs> so I'm telling you, you're going to get hooked. A poor person like, who shall not be named, I guess. It, well, yeah. <laughs> it's like Breaking Bad. If you watch Breaking Bad, the first couple episodes, you're going to get hooked. Same. Inti- well, you same, are, same thing. but then you're also going. I, I, I don't know whether I represent a tiny minority or a zero minority, but there every uh, many shows become too violent for me. When I see something that I think crosses my own line of comfort. I then dis- and Bill's the same way. We just choose not to watch it anymore, and we've done hmm. that with so many shows. Like we did that with Weeds, right. Weeds, uh, which is a comedy. We did that. That's with- an awesome show too. Yeah, we did that with uh, uh, what's that one? Deadwood. There comes a point where you see somebody act so badly, and you see an act of violence so gross. It's not even gratuitous. It's part of the plot. But you know what? Hmm. I don't want to know this whole. World anymore. I just don't want. Yeah, to there's a point where it's just not fun anymore. And when it's, it's not, not fun, fun why torture yourself by watching it? Yeah. I mean, I remember that episode in Deadwood. It was a great show, and then they did this one stupid thing, and I thought to myself, why would they they do that? I mean, turn me off of the show. 
Well, it is sort of, it's like the opposite of, it, it would be like gutting the shark, not jumping the shark. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that, that happens, and, and um, I guess it breaks the fourth wall, and you're suddenly too... Un- See, I, yeah. I definitely I recommend never to watch Dexter, then, because the whole premise of that show is about... But you people, never so. know. You know what's a funny thing? Um, I've watched countless things in which I, I understand the humor, and I, under, I, I understand the point of it, but I guess there are certain things that just... Everybody's different. Different people just have different buttons, and they don't want to see certain members of the community hurt. I think true. is really what it comes down to. That's <laughs> very true. Yeah. So Thank yeah. Very much. So. Do you know the so, premise of Dexter, though? I do, and and the yeah. thing is, remember, don't uh-huh. don't forget, you're talking to the guy, Mr. Bill Burns, mm-hmm. who, yes, when yes. he was working on Serial Killers, the 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 growing menace in 1980, I don't know, I have to look it up, 80 something, right? 84. Something like that. 19. Yeah. I 84. you know. When he shopped the proposal around, and we want to do this book, everybody to a person said, what in the heck is a serial killer? Okay? And after the book came out, it it sort of seeped into the language. And you can check this out. In fact, you can check that sort of thing out. You can check the amount of mentions of those two words in the in all of the newspapers in the, in the country, for example, in 1979. And then the book comes out in 84. You can check that just... FYI, people do. People do. Because, you know, with this world of a million facts, you have to find people you can trust. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, by the way, on the show. Our guest tonight um, is Ken Johnston. It's Ken Johnston. And the whole point of Ken Johnston is, you know, who do you trust? Do you trust, you know, the government or your lying eyes? You know, me or your lying eyes, um, as we once put into UFO magazine. In other words, the government perhaps doesn't tell us the truth. Right. NASA. And yep. and Ken yep. Johnson will point us to the clues that something else is happening on the moon and not what we were spoon fed by NASA. So well, that's going to be what I love about the story. What I love about the story of Ken as I researched it was the very simple fact that if I were working for anybody any corporation on the planet, and they were throwing away perfectly good, let's say, binders full of something, or perfectly good um, black and white photographs. Maybe, maybe I would want them for the. Maybe I just would want to keep them. You know, it just seems like destroy them or keep them, and that's all he did. That that was the core of what I, I, I hope I have it right. I, that's the core of where his whistleblowing status came from. It's like common sense. Let's. This is a heritage. The Apollo program is an important part of our history, and as it turns out, we did not go back. You say to the moon. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's not the first person to to say that, that we've been lied to about the moon. But it, it is funny how that's becoming more and more the topic when it concerns the moon. Yeah, we just we've yeah. been lied to. Right. No matter and- what angle you want to look at, you know, it's always well they they haven't been honest. Right, and we 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 always mention on these shows um, the fella. I I always forget his name. His last name might be Wolf. Bill Carl Wolf. Wolf. Carl, Carl Wolf. Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you'll run into Carl Wolf's name when researching Ken, because Carl also oh, really? saw stuff. Yeah, yeah. And Bill always tells the story because Carl was a low-level, believe it or not, Xerox repairman, basically. Oh. Wow. Um, you know, and and on a weekend he was brought in to repair one of the machines, and the after he fixed it. The stuff that popped out was not for his eyes. Bah. Uh-huh. 
you know. And it wasn't until his his face went white that the you know other person in the room realized it. So, and then Carl Wolf, it, I would love to talk to him, but he did one time. Um, he's the only person I've ever heard of this. He prepared for twenty uh, two thousand and not two thousand and one uh, two thousand the millennium. Yeah, two K. Year two K. Year two K. Year two K. Yeah, he prepared yeah. for that with all kinds of supplies and stuff, and he went ahead. The only person I know who went up in the hills um, with his out in, the, out in the desert, out in Kern County. But I think up in the mountains, mountainous section, from what I hear. I thought he was up in um, Mount Baldy or the Snow Place. No, no, no. It was it was out in Kern County, and he went out in the desert and um, waited for right, the apocalypse. And then we, we lost touch. I would love to know at what point do you come back? <laughs> you know, and and how much do you bring? I mean, at what point hmm. do you say, okay, fine? I mean, wouldn't and he, like and he lived right on the border, after- right in this great spot. And I just remembered the, uh, 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 the condo he had, too. It was right at the corner where Beverly Hills meets West Hollywood, right uh-huh. near Doheny. And, I mean, and that's what I, he I, left. I right? love that area. That was one of my favorite areas in L.A. Yeah. And, yeah. And, how did, and why were you in contact with Coral Wolf? Because he was helping us with UFO magazine, as early as 1998, 1999. Okay, yeah. In fact, um, that's when we first published his story in the magazine. Uh-huh. I'll have to go back and get that. You know, I'm preparing to re- uh, go back on the market and sell all of our old uh, UFO magazines in print. And in fact, um, I'll have to think about a fair price or something, but I have, a, I have a, a little situation I'm building, and Angel knows about it and Bill knows about it, but I can't talk about it until it's done because I've been promising so many things since we started mm-hmm. talking on the radio. So I'm going to just say, you know, when it's done, it's going to be lovely and you're going to like it. And, um, you know, and, and you could always get a sneak peek. You could go to shadowlawnpress.com and watch the progress because I'm trying to build it out. Now I'm putting all the books that we've done ever and stuff. And you'll see, um, when you hit the first broken link, you can know I'm not done, but, you know, it, when when all the books are up and there are for sale buttons beside them, that's when I'll be able to announce. Ta-da! There you go. Won't be too long. Couple yeah. weeks. Yeah. No, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm telling. Less? No, I'm saying a couple of months. I really oh, am okay. saying a couple of months. I'm going to be fair this time and say, I'm not rushing. And Good, I'm right. told, exactly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I'm not rushing because it, there's all of Shadowland Press. That's about 130 books. Cool. All the filament books. I have no idea how many books. I've never counted. And then I guess El Yusinian Cafe is where I'm going to sell the old UFO mags and nice. a few other bits of stuff. And so all of this is going to be packaged together in a convenient form that nice. you will like. Yeah. So, so you're bringing back El Yusinian Cafe? I remember that. El Yusinian Cafe, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I basically I kept all these things, and I'm working the websites right now. I'm building out the websites. Um, cool. Anybody who's ever done this with hundreds of pieces of product – no, you know, it's a big job. It's a big job, yeah, but it is. somebody's got to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know. And with as busy as you, as you and Bill are, I'm surprised you have enough time to do all this stuff. Well, I don't do anything else but. And I listen to radio uh, while I'm doing it. And um, just, you know, and then that makes me sad again because. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we will survive. We will move on. Um, yes. In fact, yeah, tonight's show is going to be super great. And does Bill have any news for us? I have I have zero news. 
Mr. Okay, Burns, so, nothing? But, but, but you have one bit of news about UFO Hunters book two. I think it, it's, um, oh, it's well, due yeah, out it, from the it publisher. It was supposed to come out January 19th next week, but it's not. There was a glitch in production, so it's coming out in February, February 27th, I think. Ah, okay, uh-huh. so, yeah. yeah. But, but... You know, you can be, you're available for talk shows, and you can also uh, pre-order this sucker, I'm sure. I think mm-hmm. I'm going to be uh, on George Knapp's show at the end nice. of January, and back on the Peter Boyle show at the same time. Oh, we'll see that. And what about you, Angel? What is in, besides Skywatchers on Wednesday, what else? Well, actually, um, you can be found on the radio, beside tonight's show, how else and when? Because I need um, to know. I never well, listened to you table. on um, on the on the on the roundtable, right? Yeah, you really should. It's it's that's a funny show. That's you should really tell really me when show. it's okay. Tell us when it's on. I will write it down again. <laughs> it's on Sundays at 10 p.m. on PSN Dash Radio, same place you listen to now. And how often do you? I mean, not how often. How and it's live every week, pretty much. Pretty Sundays much. I mean, we sometimes we skip when we all are busy, but for the most part, we're 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 live every week. And then, how long does the show last? Two hours, right? Same right. as uh, the show. Okay. Same yeah. as this. I should know this. Yes. Because, uh, you know, I never, I have to get into habits. I also want to start listening to Rolly James because I'm dying to have her on as a guest. And I want to have a lot more Rolly James under my belt, so to speak, because she's Whoa. a lady. Well, I know I have realized that sounds really bad. It's too late to get too that late. back. Congratulations, <laughs> Bill. Ay, ay, ay. Um, we'll uh, quick out. shout out yeah I'll cut it out later quick shout outs to uh, Solaris uh, Blue Raven from Hyperspace that's right she's a new yeah. show on PSN I'm producing her show and she's doing fabulous what is and, her time uh, slot she is on now Fridays at 10pm Eastern from okay Fridays that's another 10pm show yep okay yep, yep. there you go I sense a trend knocking it out the park I sense a trend. So far. And then, yeah, and then, and then Skywatchers on Wednesday. And there's yep. no, but there's no more Jackal's Head. That's the thing, right? Well, Jackal's Head is going to come back on on Saturday nights. At 10? Yep. At 10. Well, see, then we are covering, we're beginning to cover the waterfront here. Right. But the Jackal's Head is going to be, uh, it's going to be about maybe an hour or two hours. I'm not sure yet what format I'm going to keep it, whether an hour or two. But it's going to be just uh, mostly entertainment and uh, interviews with uh, people in the music business movie business, you know, stuff like that. Stuff like that. Right. And I have I have a few items in my head too as well, just for the fun of it, because um, you know, selling books. I'm I'm very, very focused on selling books right now. Um and it's a fun place to be focused. It feels like yep. finally the right thing to be doing. So I feel Especially really- when you have as many books as you have to I know, and I'm really, you know, I'm looking up, I'm looking up from doing, like, if you go to the celebrity page, that's where I'm stuck right now, uh, on Shadow Lone Press, celebrity, there are so many books, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't have to scan them, and I'm thinking to myself, why do Bill and I always feel like we're lazy, we're always lying around watching television, when we are lying around watching television, we feel very guilty, but yet, yet, we, we do get up from the couch and do other things, so... Go to the bathroom, eat, come back yeah. to the couch. Roll. <laughs> Go back to sleep. It's- that sounds like a Sunday for me, actually. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, I'm going to hope that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, now I'm speaking to Danny. I'm speaking directly to Danny. Now, let's, let's hook up Robert Morningstar for a show. Because Danny yes. is sort of working behind the scenes, helping all of us. And, and it's uh, crickets. You must get the crickets also. It's, 
It adds oh, to I the love ambience. the crickets. Yeah, they're, they're the frog food, I think, actually. You know what's funny? When he was on the show last time on Skywatchers, uh, when we first got him on the call, there were no crickets. And we're like, hey, crickets, they're none. Cool. Then as soon as the show went live, crickets showed up. Well, he probably, yeah, he probably pushed a button and, um, you know. No, I think I he has uh, like a Jedi mind trick over the crickets where he knows how to tell them to like, calm it down and you know, they'll make noise and then release the crickets. Well, I believe they are the they are the food source for his lizards, which yes. makes it even worse. So you yeah. have that, and yeah. possibly the food source of our future. Well, maybe this is true. Maybe yes. Yeah. After the everything arc- else is irradiated, yep. Yep, yeah, crickets and bugs. Soylent green. Mm-hmm. Yummy. Have you ever seen Soylent Green? No. The movie? Oh, that's, that's one of something the you should super do. classics. You really need to see Soylent Green. Um, it's a great performance by uh, Edward G. Edward Robinson. G. Robert Robinson. And, of course, his the whole His final movie, performance. It is his final. For, oh, it's like he does a Mickey Rooney. It's like his final mm-hmm. performance. It was his final performance? Yeah. Wow, that's poignant. Uh, you better check on that. I think I'm going to ask Lou to check on that. Because that if that's not his final performance, that's a big... Because he plays a guy who's going to be dying. Um, obviously, he's old. But... Charlton Heston is runs through the whole movie with a little red neckerchief. Do you know what a neckerchief is? Uh, is, is it like the cousin of a handkerchief? No? Well, it goes around your neck. It looks like a handkerchief, but it's like you tie it in a little knot at your Adam's apple, and it's what mm-hmm. cowboys used to do, and then they would push the knot to the side a little bit. Ah, uh, okay. In you think this, of John Wayne. Well, <coughs> but in this, the, <coughs> the neckerchief hangs down like almost like a cravat. Mm-hmm. And he wears it the whole time because he's kind of muscular, and you know, it's a it's a, a science fiction movie just like Body Snatchers. You have to see Soylent Green, get get it, and you know, add it to your to your collection. It's, for sure. it's more like Blade Runner. It's dystopian. No, nice. it's you know, it's not like Blade Runner. It's not a brilliantly beautiful movie. It's not. No, it's it's not. But what I'm saying is, in in a dysto- it's a very dystopian movie. The way Blade Runner was a dystopian movie. Yeah, but it's over the top. It's nothing. It's not classy, and it's not smart like Blade Runner. Blade Runner is smart and anguished and sensitive, and and um, Soylent Green is just basically like a. It's like a, a 1970s movie of That's the week. That's what it was. A, a 1970s. It might have been. It's very bad color. You know, it's not as bad as Zardoz. I think that was the name of it with Sean Connery in a skirt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think we've come to the end of our half hour. Yes, yes, and uh, so we will bring on our guests. So we are your co-hosts, Bill and Nancy Burns. <laughs> That's us, and we That's are them. on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. Actually, live on PSN Radio. Right, right. And get, get that right, we played on right. Dark Matter, <laughs> and we will be back with our guest uh, Ken Johnston talking about Ken's Moon. Mm-hmm. After these messages. Ta-da.
team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California Gold Rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more superman homepage.com roswell ufos flying saucers alien abduction are we alone information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com the ufostore.com offers hundreds of dvds about ufos aliens crop circles conspiracies bigfoot suppressed science ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO Store catalog. The UFOstore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the internet. Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk Radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. And we are back on Future Theater Live on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network with our guest, Ken Johnston, uh, who has written the book and is writing another one. But this book is Ken's Moon. And I thank you, Ken, for coming on. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it very much. Welcome. Uh, Welcome. Yeah. um, Okay. Tell us the premise of Ken's Moon. It's a fascinating title. And uh, your background is fascinating. So what is the premise of that book? Well, the premise, actually, the the first book that's out is uh, my autobiography, actually, from 
the beginning um, of being born, actually, all the way up to the time whenever I got out of the Marine Corps as a pilot and went to work at NASA and got into just the beginning of, of the activities that I did at NASA. And mm-hmm. so uh, the moon was kind of not always my personal uh, desire to go to the moon, although becoming a part of it and winding up uh, working at the Johnson Space Center in Houston uh, with my brother, Dr. A.R. Johnston, and my first cousin, uh, Air Force Captain uh, Don Garrett. And very interesting how we all wound up working at the same place at the same time on the same mission. So, Well, how, how did that happen? How did, how did that happen? <clears throat> Sometimes I wonder if somebody hasn't been guiding what's been going on in this world. Well. But, uh, no, I, I put my time in the Marine Corps where I, I learned to fly as a pilot. And then um, I took my little family and moved to Norman, Oklahoma for a couple of weeks where my, my family, most of the family is around Oklahoma University there. Um, my brother was down at Houston at the Johnson Space Center, and he said, well, come on down here because right now all these major companies are staffing up to uh, get ready to put a man on the moon. And so what year was this, Ken? I'm sorry, say it again. What, uh, what year was this when your brother told you to go, go on down to Texas? Year. Oh, I'm sorry. That was 1966. Ah, okay. <laughs> that was just when everything was building. Up. Not too long after, um, you know, President Kennedy said we're going to send a man to the uh, humans to well, the moon and return them safety. Not how did right. you avoid? How did you avoid Vietnam during this this time where the the Marines were? Um, well, that's um, again. I've looked back after writing my autobiography. I, I look back and I, it's amazing the things that happened in my life that protected me and prevented and, and kind of set me up to wind up at certain places at the right time. Um, when I was in military academy and uh, at the Oklahoma Military Academy, I was in advanced ROTC. I was a captain. And my best friend, Jack Lancaster, who's passed away, uh, he and I were both going for a summer course at uh, Oklahoma City University. He came in the dorm one night. And he says, uh, Ken, he says, I've joined the Marine Corps. And he mm-hmm. kind of young and dumb at that time. I said, like, <laughs> you have, I'm going to, I'll go too. So I went down the next day and enlisted. I went wow. from being a, a captain to a Marine Corps buck private at San Diego as an enlisted, but with guaranteed to go to aviation electronics training. Mm-hmm. Uh, wound up going through that. And um, uh, the thing was, it, Vietnam was starting to build up pretty big about that time. That was 1962. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, uh, right. So I, I got picked up on officer pilot training in the Marine Corps and sent to Pensacola in 1963. Um, while I was in there, we flew uh, through all the, the basics and up to advanced and was getting into jets. And we got the order from uh, the, the commander-in-chief to, that we needed more pilots to fly helicopters in Vietnam. Mm, and, wow, yeah. Uh, they came to me and said, well, you're, you're no longer going to be flying jets. You're going to go fly helicopters. I said, no, I'm not. Oh, wow. My dad was um, a a pilot, a captain in World War II, and flew uh, real airplanes. They didn't have the propeller swinging around up above their heads like helicopters. Mm -hmm. Um, At any rate, so uh, I I did what they call a DOR, that's drop at your own request. So I dropped from being uh, officer pilot training back to an enlisted corporal at the Marine Corps out at uh, uh, El Toro, which no longer exists. Because had, you didn't, because you didn't want to do the helicopter straight path that they had set out for you. Uh, that that's true, and and also the fact that I just discovered that uh, I, I was married and that I had a um, uh, a child, mm-hmm. and so I decided I had responsibilities there. So when I, I left Pensacola and went back out to El Toro, I only had uh, twelve months left on my um, 
my four-year active duty, so I was able to, they wouldn't send you overseas when you had less than 12, 12 months. Yeah, wow. And yeah. Uh, that's how I averted winding up um, over in, in Vietnam. I guess wow. somebody was looking out for me. And of the and of and for Bill and myself, Bill was able as the sole surviving son. Uh, he ended up his mother was elderly. He ended up not going, and I was married to a soldier who did go, and so I lived through all of that. That was quite uh, right. a, a time. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Jack Lancaster was a sole surviving heir as well. So even though he tried to go over to Vietnam, um, they yeah. wouldn't send him. So, yeah. Well, so I, I, you miss. So, so you dodged that bullet. So, so you're you're. At, this is when you all started at NASA, right? That's correct. Yeah. Nineteen sixty-six. Right. Se- and 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 what what was the atmosphere like at NASA in nineteen sixty-six when you got there? Oh, Boy. it was. Everybody was excited, and we were pushing the envelopes on every piece of technology we could come up with. I would sit in on meetings and. Um, with well, with with Grom, Grumman particularly because we built the lunar module, and we would look at we had a we, we really what we we're looking at we had to have it done before that decade was out so we had to back up from there okay we had to be on the moon by uh, 1969 and we would work our way backwards and I actually said in meetings where we said okay we're going to have to have uh, a spacecraft ready to test it by this time so we could bear and to do that we're going to have to have this type of technology which we don't have yet can well, you get this done it was amazing that we wow. were actually engineering and planning on advancements in new technology yeah you were basically reverse engineering something that didn't yet exist i don't know that we'd say reverse engineering it we were we were engineering it by a timeline or a time schedule in order to make uh, President Kennedy's um, commitment to come through. Right, right, right. 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 And but I mean, and that's an from the finished product that didn't exist. That didn't that's exist correct. is an impossible. It's actually an impossible thing. It's sort of like I can't imagine right now if um, if uh, someone, Obama or some other president, says we're going to go to Mars in you know in two more years. It's like okay, well, you know. Anyway, uh, did anybody qu- did anybody question why we needed to go to the moon in within that group? Within that group, it was well, it was a political because of um, the Cold War going on between uh, the United States right, and the right, uh, right. Soviet Union. Right, right. And um, since the Soviet Union Union had beat us into orbit by That's humans, high, right? I forgot right. that. All of that. Uh, yeah. Yep. The whole goal was to prove that we we had taken back command of of man's efforts into space. So we were and, all excited and pushing. You know, just to jump to the bottom line, do you uh, ever wonder why we don't we didn't go back? Well, um, I had a lot of friends that were in mission control, and I have a lot of friends who were in, in the medical area as well. Because being one of the civilian astronauts, you know, we had to have all the, the physicals and do all the same things that the regular astronauts did. And after the the Apollo 11 flight, uh, some of the guys told me that they actually heard the, the recording that we were told uh, after Apollo 17, the last one, that not to return, that we weren't ready yet. So there since wait, the, wait, the recording was made by whom of whom during the the Earth coast, the trans the uh, once we left the moon, Apollo 17, and we were back on. The trans-Earth insertion, which is when they fired the rockets and we started on our coast back to the Earth, mm-hmm. a signal came from the vicinity of the moon that was picked up by some ham radio operators as well as uh, some of the people there at NASA that talked to me said that um, 
you know, do not return, you are not ready. And this is that's the context of what I was told was on that. So wow, what does and, that signal have a name, uh, a slang term, or something people could start the looking wow for? signal, right? Isn't that what no, 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 no. This no, is not the wow signal. No, no. Okay. <laughs> the wow signal was um, out, out at the very large array. But no, uh, this is the go away signal. For goodness' sake, <laughs> there's the wow. Get the heck out of here signal. <laughs> I like the way you put that. Uh, true. It. Um, By the way, and not to cut you guys off, but before, before we continue, we have a caller on the line nine zero three. You're live on Future Theater with Ken Johnston and uh, Bill and Nancy Burns. Oh yes, uh, I really am a big fan of the story of Ken Johnston. And the main thing I wanted to have a question about tonight is um, he's had quite a few roles with NASA, and I'd like to have him talk about those because I found out about those. And thank you. I'd like to listen if that's okay. That is more than okay. Okay. Well, my original position at NASA in 1966 was with the Grumman Aerospace Corporation as a civilian astronaut consultant pilot. And our duties were to test the lunar module uh, in the vacuum chambers at NASA, the Johnson Space Center, and vacuum chamber B, the smaller one, and prove out all of the equipment that was within the human compatibility envelope and then uh, prove that it was safe in full vacuum, uh, which is like 10 to the minus 12 tour for the, the engineering people out there. Uh, it's pretty pretty tough. you got about one, one molecule of oxygen for every cubic foot. Anyway, so... Uh, that was all the way up through Apollo 11. Once, when Apollo 11 left, uh, I wasn't in the mission control. Uh, we had the Moker room, which is the um, uh, mission operations control room, which was outside of the actual mission control area. And um, we were asked to um, um, only have two people from each one of the major corporations. So I was given the go-ahead to take my vacation at the time while Apollo 11 was on the, the translunar insertion on their way, I took mm. my family and drove from Houston, Texas to uh, Bethpage, Long Island, not Bethpage, yeah, um, Long Island, and um, <laughs> uh, got to watch the landing on the moon from my uh, father-in-law and people's home there. Once that was over, I came back to, um, to Houston where I had been assigned a project using a command module Apollo command module and putting a large telescope on the bottom of it, kind of like what the Hubble telescope is now. Mm-hmm. So um, when I got back and walked into the building for the astronaut uh, building and talked to John Pierce, my boss, he says, Ken, you, while you were on your vacation, the government canceled the project and, and Grumman is laying off nearly 30,000 employees. And unfortunately, your job got cut. So I wow. I was told um, they gave me two weeks severance pay and two weeks all I'd do is check in and go help find. And I went to work over at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory uh, and caught Neil and Buzz and Mike Collins in uh, quarantine. If you remember our first two missions, we actually quarantined the astronauts for 27 days yes. after they got back. And um, as at there, then uh, Brown and Northrop Corporation uh, put me in as the data and photo control department manager there at the, the LRL Lunar Receiving Laboratory. And in that position, I had to maintain uh, the, the both the orbital as well as surface photographs uh, of all of the samples taken and, and all the missions and then make those available to participating scientists from around the world. Um, that kept me quite busy for a while. And we can go into a little bit more of some of the interesting things that happened there. She wanted me to kind of cap off 
the things that I did oh. at NASA. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the, so the me... job, the job in particular is, that we're talking about tonight is the job in which <clears throat> these photos came um, came not into your possession, but they basically uh, were going to be destroyed. And and that and when you were doing that job, that was when you were in this position of um, you were an independent contractor at this point, right? You were no, no longer with Grunman, but. I, I was with the uh, another contractor, and that was the Brown and Root Northrop Corporation. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, the Brown yeah. and Root. Yeah, right. and uh, Brown and Root aren't, aren't they known for? Are they known for photography at any point? Not really. What kind, what kind of company really. is Brown and Root? BRN was a was hired to be run. It's kind of an administrative company that took care of the the space center and the janitorial, as well as uh, oh, okay. other other contracts and things. And they had. They had maintenance and upkeep of the um, uh, the lunar and planet uh, LRL lunar receiving laboratory, and we were in support of all, of the NASA scientists that were processing all of the lunar samples that we brought back. And uh, right after, let's see, right after Apollo fourteen, um, I was told by my uh, my lead and BRN, um, um, Bud Lascala, that the, he received orders that I was to. I, by the way, I maintained. Five complete sets of all of the pictures in glossy eight and a half by elevens, or eight by eight by ten, I should say. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because we'd have scientists come in from all over the world, and they'd pick up a one of the samples or a thin section of a particular lunar sample, and they'd want to have orbital views of what that terrain looked like, as well as on the lunar surface, the specific orientation of that sample, because it made a difference. No, I see. Yeah, yeah, at, yeah. So, at any rate, uh, I was told. Well, how many how many photographs altogether are we talking about? Oh Lord, we're talking about hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and this <laughs> is from the Hasselblad that was uh, chest mounted. Yes, that the, <clears throat> the astronauts used. And it, it was a. Um, is it black and white or color? Color. Now, also, it's not just the uh, the Hasselblad on the astronauts. It was also from the uh, the payload bay of the command module, the service module, which was orbiting the moon while um, the astronauts were on the surface, ah. mapping mapping the lunar surface. And, well, uh, is that how the photography was done uh, when the first man is walking down the stairs? It's Who takes that? Who? Um, how was that photography done? I, I've had a lot of young people say, well, somebody was on the moon took that picture. What they don't understand is the that picture was taken from a 16-millimeter uh, sequence camera in the uh, lunar module pilot switch, which is the right-hand side of the limb. Okay. And the the window looking down from there was able to catch the picture of that. Yeah, and then got it. On, on another EVA, when we had the tripod set up and we had a a video camera set up uh, a little bit away from where the ladder is, we got to take pictures of that. What other people don't realize on Apollo Eleven is Neil Armstrong is the only one that had had a ham- had a camera. Mm-hmm. And when you see the picture of the astronaut coming down the ladder, that's Buzz Aldrin. And the picture of the first footprint on the moon, that's Buzz Aldrin's footprint because Neil had the camera. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, we should repeat that next time Next time mm. Bill tells the story. Well, right. And um, you you, um, you said that some people have, have asked about um, the, the pictures of <laughs> saying, well, you know, you, could, you couldn't get in out of the lunar module. You couldn't do this and couldn't do that. And these people yeah, weren't, yeah, weren't even born. Yeah. I have hundreds of pictures of me in full spacesuit going in and out of the lunar module door, particularly LTA-8, lunar test article number 8, in the vacuum chambers. And so I, I understand when 
Buzz, I, I really applaud. He got so uptight of, of reporters hounding him, they turned around and decked the person. I thought that was pretty, pretty brazen. That's right. That's right. So tell us about the photographs, because one of the um, one of the um, discoveries that you made were about things in photographs that you didn't think should be there. Um. Well. And let's go back a little bit and talk about when I was told to to dispose of all but one set. Um, Mr. Escalma told me that um, the direction came from high. And I said, look, these were paid for by our tax dollars, and there are universities all over. We'd love to have a set of these. Why don't I just send them out to the, the universities? And he says, no, we were told to get rid of them. I don't care what you do. Just get rid of them. And I took that little statement as a tacit thing. Get rid of most of them, but I kept a set for myself. Yeah, but get rid of them really only means get them out of my sight, get them out of our property. We we don't want them, but it doesn't mean you have to stand there and put them into an incinerator, right? No, in fact, though, but I was told to get rid of them, throw them in the dumpster, and I did that. And since then, there's another person that um, uh, a friend of mine I be- has become a friend of mine, and and she. Um, Says it's not her, but she says that she found uh, these pictures in the dumpster and saved a bunch of them. Now I wow. took a, I took a complete set to Oklahoma City University and gave it to the science department at that lab. But I kept my own personal archive that I'd been, you know, saving during all the, all the missions while I was at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. Right. So basically, you might have gotten rid of three out of the five, kept one, and took one took one to that's, the university. That's correct. Wow. So um, it's already I mean, again. Just what was the rationale for for um, destroying these or throwing them uh, out? Well, I couldn't get a straight answer. I kept saying, "Well, you know, these things are they're you know we just want to just dump them." And I've said, "No, get rid of them." And you're t- because um, they're taking up so much space, which was ridiculous. I had about ten or twelve filing cabinets that were full, and each folder maintained up to five copies of. Of each wait, mission. wait. When you are you talking about the four drawer, the tall ones? Yes, I am. Wow. Um, you know, Bill and I have had we've been been in the publishing business forever, and so we have had eras where we have had rooms full of those kind of filing cabinets, and right. that's a massive amount of stuff. Mm-hmm. By the way, guys, we're joined by Amy. Amy, you're live on Future Theater. Oh, you have great. a question hi, for Amy. Ken. Well, hi, Amy. Thanks, and. Um, Thanks for having me, Bill, Nancy, and Ken. I wanted to ask real briefly about which specific photos. Were they from a specific mission? Or are they, you know, all these pictures, whenever they're taken, they always get, you know, roll numbers, frame numbers, or entered in a photographic log. They're given specific release numbers like A11-230817, you know, and so on and so forth when they're released to the public. And then they're... You know, and they have the the red glossies, and they've got you know they've got a whole bunch of a whole system set up for that. Yes, they do. And and, and what I was curious about with, with specifically with that, even during missions or after missions, um, you know, mission controllers have told me that you know literally they would have mission documentation. They would literally have trash cans filled with hundreds and hundreds of pounds of papers back then they would after the mission was over they would just toss a bunch of stuff that they thought they didn't really need anymore and there's been actually a lot of historical information that's been lost permanently just because you know they were just cleaning the top of their desk off for the next mission and could this situation with the photographs been just as blatant as far as 
you know, just, oh, we don't need those, they're, they're a spare set or whatever, or is there something unique about the set that they were asking you to destroy? Right. Well, there are, there are lots of people out there like myself that were in specific positions where they may have seen the same thing that I did and made the decision to save for history purposes uh, that particular type of, of information. Uh, one of the things that you may not be aware of is that once we finished up with Apollo 17, uh, and I've talked to some of the others, and it even happened to me, a lot of us had mission operation handbooks, we had drawings, we had schematics, we had everything, and um, government people came to our homes and uh, confiscated everything. In fact, it was so bad that when, um, let's see, which president was it? Um, I think Carter it was, decided we were going to go to Mars, and people looked around and says, we don't know how to do it because they <laughs> didn't have access to any of the documents, drawings, and, and operation handbooks and, and about how we managed to do it in the uh, the Apollo program. So there were times when uh, all the material and data was being confiscated. Now, um, I think the first part of your question was was that about how many pictures we had? Or but the, We were talking about hundreds and hundreds of pictures because each I had a folder for each one, and in the Apollo program, they were AS- and it would give the number like um, AS-17 or AS-11, which meant it was an Apollo 11 picture, and then you had a, ro a real a roll number, and then you had the specific photo number. My pictures all have the uh, the original NASA photo number on it. In fact, uh, my personal archive set that I kept when um, a gentleman by the main, you may know him, uh, Richard C. Hoagland, mm -hmm. uh, when his people started getting anomalies, they would take, the number that people says, I think something looks strange on this picture, they would come to my archive, would pull out the originals, because my pictures came from the original negatives. The reason they were that way is because the scientists around the world wanted to have the best detailed pictures to look at the specific samples, even the terrain from space. So these okay. are shot directly from the negatives. These are not copies of pictures that came no. from the negatives. That, that's one of the biggest problems people have. They'll they'll request a picture from uh, NASA's archive, and they'll get it's kind of like you use one of these Xerox copy machines, and you make a a copy of a copy, and then right. a copy of that copy, and a copy. Till finally, you really can't tell what was there. Well, that's all kind of I think has been was in the plan, but they didn't realize that uh, some of us had kept the originals. Well, it, but in what plan? I'm sorry. When you said it was in the plan, what plan would that be? From from the perspective of my 73 years and age and looking back, there had to be a plan. And I know if you look at the directive, the way it was put out uh, back in the late 1950s, um, I think it was President Eisenhower asked to have a study done by uh, the the high-tech company. It was... It was the Bricking, Brookings Institute back then it was the MIT, what we have today. They were the, the head thinkers of science. They were asked to do an analysis of what would be the effect on society if we were to discover the existence of extraterrestrial life. And you, you can you can go on the internet and you can look up that particular thing. Yeah, but before physical. before you do, you should listen really quickly to what Bill can tell you about that. No, no, okay. I'm talking about the Rand Corporation study. This is the Brooklyn, uh, this is the Brookings study. Okay, are you sure? Okay. Yeah, this is Brookings study. report. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, Brookings, uh, okay. Brookings was before the Rand, am I correct? And the Brookings, right. the yep. Brookings, okay, so then what is the Brookings? I'm confusing them for sure. It, 
It's well, at, like hmm. MIT, University yeah. High Tech uh, Research Center. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Their analysis was that if we did discover the existence of extraterrestrial life, it would be on Mars, on our moon, or on the Earth. And that if we did, that evidence has shown that any time an advanced society comes in contact with a lesser advanced, the lesser loses its identity and its whole society crumbles. And uh, the decision was made then to not reveal if we discovered that we were told it would be wise not to reveal any of it. And fortunately, I was in, in a position that I had the opportunity firsthand to observe and see the evidence of a extraterrestrial. So, well, okay. I, and what? And when you say that, what evidence do you mean right there? Before we move on, um, okay. Yeah. Um, right after Apollo fourteen, Doctor Thornton Page, who was um, in charge of the Lunar and Planetary Science Department, contacted me at the uh, LRL Lunar Saving Laboratory and asked me to pull a specific reel and specific specific film that was taken from the um, um, lunar lunar surface mapping camera in the payload bay of, of the service module, the, the one that's connected to the to the right. command module, okay, uh, and set up a viewing for him and some of the other scientists. Um, he knew that I was a former military and that I had experience with gun sequence cameras. Um, and people who may not know what that is, if you've seen a, a movie newsreel and it shows an airplane chasing another and they start firing their, their guns and you can see where the tracers and things are going, that's coming from a, a camera mounted in, in the airplane. Well, we had a camera mounted in the service module uh, on our missions. And uh, so Dr. Page had me pick up that particular reel of film and set up a showing in the uh, building next door to the mission control. Um, I had what was called a, a gun sequence camera projector, which would allow me to freeze, zoom in, zoom out, back up, go forward one frame at a time or multiple frames. Right. In other words, you, you could really study it quite well. Well, I set up the showing. It was Dr. Page, and, and I, I believe there were six or seven other scientists in the room. And um, we're, we're looking at this particular reel, and we're from the command box. We're on the back side of the moon, and we're approaching a crater that I've identified as Tsiolkovsky. The Russians named most all of the big craters on the back side, which is about 120 miles across uh, Tsiolkovsky is. And the sun angle at that particular day uh, was about 45 degrees, so you had half of the um, crater was in shadow in the bottom of the crater. And as we approached that, in the shadowed part, if you'll take your hand and put your palm up and bring all of your fingers together and just look at the top tips of your fingers, they look like five little balls. Well, these were five domes that were illuminated from the inside, and one of them had a, a steam or a column of, of projection coming up from the top of it. Dr. Page had me freeze, zoom in, go back and forth several times, and he turned to the other six um, scientists and said, well, boys, what do you think of that? And they all laughed. It was an inside joke, I guess. But looking back years later, I realized he had to have known which reel, which film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. And, so and, and were they there. smooth? Were the domes smooth? Was it what? Were the domes themselves very smooth or mechanical looking? Oh, absolutely. It. I guess... <laughs> If you had a, a white opaque balloon and you're looking at it with, you know, just from the top, it, it is a dome, okay? That's exactly what we were looking at. Dr. Page told me to go ahead and finish the showing. I finished that up, 
And while I'm packing it up, he and the guys were all talking and laughing. I couldn't hear what they were saying. But I was to check out the same reel of film the next day and take it to the main auditorium at JSC, Manned Spacecraft Center back then, and show it to the rank-and-file scientists, engineers, and, and just employees at, at JSC. And, uh, I, of course, I had my brother, Dr. A.R. Johnston, there, and I told him what we had found. And we were approaching Ziokovsky, and we get to the shaded part uh, in shadow, and there was nothing there. I literally stopped the camera, told the audience, I said, I'm having technical difficulties. I took the film out, and I went through that area very quickly, and there was no evidence that it had been cut or anything. So within 24 hours, they had to have taken the original, taken wow. it out, spliced, cut, um, uh, if not airbrushed. We didn't do that back then. They painted out the shadows. And then put it back in. Uh, well, and did did, did you have clearance to have seen everybody who saw it with their own eyes uh, would have to have had, I guess, a certain level of clearance, right? I had I had a top level clearance, top level secret clearance. And um, when I I put the film back in and finished showing it, everybody thought, oh, that was great. They were so excited because they'd seen uh, a great picture of the backside of the moon. That's all they thought. My brother asked me, he says, "We thought you said you found something." Well, I took the film back to the the main photo lab. And there you, when you walk in the front, there's a, where visitors come in and they can request a particular print or a picture. Or you can go behind there. You've got to have just a regular secret clearance to go in the middle. And when I walked into the middle there, there's a like a three-by-four-foot um, lighting table uh, illuminated from the backside. And they had negatives on top. There, was two, there were two men and one woman. There, and they were painting out things on the, surf, the horizon. And uh, I asked them what they were doing. One of the guys says, well, we're professional strippers. And the lady says, well, no, we, we're actually what we're doing is we're stripping out and painting out the stars and things that might confuse people about what they see. Well, I had to go on in. You had to have a top secret clearance to go into the back where the, the actual films and prints were kept. And I checked that one in. On the way back to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, I ran into Dr. Page. And I asked him uh, what had happened to those domes and things we saw on the backside of the moon. And Dr. Right. Page gave me a kind of a long wink, and he said there was never anything there. Wow. So And, and did, did, did he introduce you to the other people in the room when you were showing that particular slide show? No, he did not. Uh, he, they were over at the Lunar Planetary Science Building, which was the old Jim West mansion, which was just right off the, the southwest, southeast corner of, of where NASA is now, right next to Clear Lake. Um, they were all there, but no, there wasn't. There were no introductions made. I was just asked to set the films up, and uh, but that was a very exclusive showing. It's almost like um, you know some kind of inner circle. Why were they privy to that information? And they were not shocked and falling on the floor. I guess well, um, screaming. As I I deduced over the years that they that Doctor Page actually knew exactly which one to have, and he wanted to show it to these other folks. Uh, of course. You can go way forward, and, and Mr. Hoagland even found out that Dr. Page was what they used to call a, a dollar-a-year man for the uh, the FBI. And in other words, he was a consultant who would come in for it. I don't okay, know I was just going to I was going to ask you about him. His um, Dr. Page, his first name. Do you do you, do you recall? Um, Thornton, Doctor Thornton Page. Yep. Yeah, we'll go. We'll go googling him and see well, see now, what became you, of him. Well, now when you saw those uh, crystal domes. Were you? Uh, they were opaque, so you couldn't see inside them. Correct. That's correct. 
the funny thing is that the story you just told about those photographs, another gentleman um, who I know very well from California, who was a repair, his name is Carl Wolf. We talked about him in, in, in the first segment. <clears throat> he was a photo processing repair officer in the Air Force. That's what he did. He worked on the photo processing machines. Right. And one particular day, and, and, and the base he was at, and I wish I remembered the name of the Air Force base, but it was divided in half. One half was a, a formal routine, you know, nothing special, no real heavy top secret stuff, just an air base. The other half was where he could not go. He was not authorized to go there. He didn't have the security clearance. But that was supposedly where they were doing some very advanced um, research. One weekend, he happens to be the only, it was a Sunday, I think, he was the only um, repairman on duty for those machines. It was a, kind of a weekend thing everybody hated to do. But this yeah, is his weekend. Out there. Okay. Just, yeah. He gets this phone call that one of the photo processing machines on the other side of the base had broken down. And he's the only tech that's working that day. And they had people there, and they needed for someone to see if the machine could be fixed. So he's let over, he's escorted over to that side of the base, couldn't go there on his own, brought into this room, and he, he says, he told me that he's seeing all these foreign nationals, that he can't figure out why these people are, are at a top-secret base. He's seeing people that are clearly from Europe. He sees people from Asia. He can't figure out why there are all these strange people in civilian clothing on this part of the base. But he's only an enlisted person. It's not his job to figure that out. They show him to the machine, does a quick diagnostic, and realizes one of the boards, on the, one of the circuit boards, it's a very primitive kind of machine, one of the circuit boards is blown. He says, I think I have a part on the other side of the base in my shop. I didn't bring it with me, but I could swap in and we could see if that gets the machine to print because uh, the printer was broken. So they take the machine, across the base, back to his shop. He puts in the new circuit board and the machine, which is, I mean, it's just now a printer. It starts printing out photos. And he looks down and he sees the exact the way he described this knee was exactly as you just described the photos that you were showing. A series of crystals inside a crater, didn't name the crater, on the dark side of the moon. And his jaw drops. And the person who escorted him back didn't realize at first that he wasn't authorized to see those photos. So when his jaw drops, this other person says, oh my God, you're not cleared for this. And he says, we could be killed for this. He takes the machine, takes the photo, takes them back across the other side of the, of the base. Yeah, it was I, fascinating to me. It, it is to me because I just came across that within the last uh, within the last month, and I would love the opportunity to sit down for the two of us, sit down together, and talk about that because uh, he, he validates what I had been saying. And there's also another person, uh, Donna Hare. Donna who, Hare. She was on yes. our UFO Hunter show. She told the yes. same story. I am. I know, and it's it. We we don't even know each other. Never come across one. Here we're telling the exact same story, and one backs up the other. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and she I'm, even asked the person who was doing the stripping. She says, "Why are you taking out that? It, it was a shape. It was a dark shape that she thought was a spaceship." And right. she says, "Why are you taking it out?" And the person flat out told her, "Because we don't have these on the moon." <laughs> yeah. I understand. Um, to give you a little fast forward on something on the same same line here, 
after all my time with NASA and everything, I uh, and after the Apollo um, Apollo One fire and a few of the, and then the Challenger when it blew up, um, I became an ordained minister, and I was um, asked to perform a wedding in Seattle, Washington, up on the top of the Space Needle that they have there in Seattle. And it was a young airman, uh, probably a, a, just basically a tech sergeant, that was getting married up there. <clears throat> and somehow we got around to talking about UFOs and the moon, and I was telling him about the same story that I told you. And he was telling me about, no, he didn't tell me anything. I said, oh, well, I have, I have, there's a group of us with the Grumman, not Grumman, excuse me, the Boeing Company. We call ourselves, jokingly, we call ourselves the Majestic 12. And we would send, uh, anytime we'd hear about a new UFO event or what have you, or, or you name it, we would send emails back, not email, we didn't have that, we'd send photocopies in the inner office mail that, that Boeing had, and we put them in our three-wing binders. Well, I said, oh, well, I've got some interesting stuff you might like. And the next day of the rehearsal for the wedding, I brought in this three-wing binder, and he's looking through it and looking at a recovery, a supposed UFO recovery over on the, the east side of Africa, and he went pale as you could be. He, wow. He's shaking. He says, I can't believe it. He says, you, you've got all this stuff in, in printing, and it's it's classified top secret. And I, we've been told with guns to our head that if we ever said anything, we'd, we'd be killed. And he says, and you've got it. He says, I, 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 I can't look at this. I, and so huh. we had to cancel well. the, um, uh, the, the rehearsal. And the next day I came back. He, he says, I, I don't want to see that again. I don't want to see any of that. But um, – you're but right. But now, was he connected with NASA or a different military no. branch? His, what he did tell me, he said he was part of the recovery team that was over there uh, that recovered uh, a crashed UFO on the coast on the east side of, of Africa. And he had more specifics on it. But um, Wow, wow. So wow. There, there are a lot but of things. In what, but in what capacity? Was he a military man at the time? He was. He was a member of the Air Force. And he was a member of of the classified recovery teams. That's that's as far as it got. As far it's, as he got. You're not talking about uh, Cho, uh, Stone. Uh, what's his first name? No, no. Uh, Cliff Stone will be a, a Cliff different. Stone. No, uh, Cliff Stone is in the army, not the Air Force. Okay. No, uh, Cliff Stone tells the same story. He was on what he called it was an NBC team, a nuclear, biological, chemical team, and he okay. said when they were retrieving. Uh, uh, downed UFOs were investigating in the area where one had crashed. He said that they would put up nuclear, biological, chemical hazard signs because that was the cover for doing those kinds of retrievals. I mean, nobody right. would question radiation or toxic chemicals. Right, right. Okay. Anyway, so that that I guess we're going to bounce back to uh, on the moon and what we saw there. And as I said, now Donna Hare and the gentleman you just told me, I'm really, really looking forward to. I believe is it October? Okay, October that there's going to be in Albuquerque a um, big event that all three of us are going to be there for the first time to meet face oh, to face, wow. and wow. we we're going to request that we can sit in a private room by ourselves and just talk for a little bit mm-hmm. and see if anything else can come out. So it's and then we'll sit on a panel so other people can ask questions. It, it's I, I don't know why, and and I don't question it that I've been blessed or cursed. With being at the right place at the right time for certain things to happen, and, and I'm not alone. There, there are, like as I say, people out there that think they're safe by keeping their mouths shut. Yeah, and, and uh, that's the worst thing they can do right now because the truth is coming out. And, and the the story was given to me back in 1995 by by Mr. Hoagland. He says, "Oh my God, 
they were looking at some of my original pictures because the details are so great. They, uh, people would, would say, I think there's an anomaly at this particular NASA photo. Can you see it? And then they would get a hold of me and we'd look at my originals and they'd say, oh, well, that's nothing. Or, oh, my Lord, would you look at that? And um, well, um, You mentioned earlier something about the plan. Um, in your um, new in your books, in the particularly, um, I guess you're working on the second book of your autobiography, basically. Well, right? there's well, <laughs> and I wondered if you had begun to outline at least form your own opinions of what this plan might be. Well, the plan is sticking with Brookings' directive, and that was to keep it quiet because uh, we couldn't handle it. And and I, I worked with a guy who it became a major debunker for now, and that was James Oberg. Uh, yep. Years he and I would not for years, about a couple of years when I worked in the same building four with the astronauts, or I was on the second floor and he actually had an office on the third. And we spent hours talking about that in the old days when the first, uh, you had the, the war of the worlds and people panicked, some people jumped off buildings were crazy. And then you had, um, the blob that was going to, you know, ooze and tip killer, up to the point where joking, he said, you know, if, if a saucer were to land on the White House lawn and a big fuzzy character would come out, Little kids say, "Hey, look, mommy, there's a there's a cookie monster. He's my friend." So it's been a process of society getting to the point to where we can accept the fact that we're not alone in this universe. In well, fact, did Oberg ever indicate to you that he knew the truth and he was just kind of being a debunker because that was his job? Yeah, no. In fact, it, it was like I said, he and I were friends a long time ago, but he, he came out and has attacked me so many times on my, my credibility and, and not, not just him, but others. And every time they come out and say, Oh, well, he wasn't, he wasn't at NASA. Well, I'll show him the NASA phone book. There's my name and or what have you. And well, here's accommodation I received for that. I'm, I'm a pack rat and I'm so thankful I, I was. I've got all the records to back up everything I said, but so, um, he, he's come out shooting guns. I ran into him last year. At uh, the Mars Society conference that they had down at uh, Johnson's uh, Johnson Space Center, and he finally remembered who I was that we had known each other back then, and he was trying to show me a a sixteen millimeter uh, film picture that he says is the only one that was taken. It was taken out through the window of the command module on the way back to the Earth, and it was nothing at all compared to what I had seen before. So, uh, how how, how how so? Well, I mean, it was it was the hands moving from one side, uh, moving the, not the hands, but moving the camera around, you know, trying to hold it by himself. Whereas the the sequence camera from the service module was fixed mounted, and everything was smooth tracking along the lunar surface. So right off, I knew it wasn't the same same reel, uh, the right. same picture, and and I'm willing to undergo uh, hypnosis and regression to try to get back because if I could re- recover my memory of what the specific real a film was that Dr. Page had me pull, wouldn't it be fascinating if we could get into the archives and... Oh, and wait, find- oh, wait. You mean you don't have those and that's not been put up on the internet and everything? It is still... It's only something that you projected and then you put back into its files and that was it. That it is was correct. Gone. The, the next oh. day, the next day, the same numbered reel and, and the same track on the, the back side of the moon reel that I showed had been tampered with and modified to where you couldn't see. They were this gone. The, I, think, I think Donna Harris put it, what her friend, she says her friend said, is it anywhere on the moon where there was something near a shadow, they would paint it out black to where in the shadow, it, very sharp 
delineation from where the sun angle was because of the lack of atmosphere. It's just but that's so un-American at the end of the day. Well, you know, what's taking, so funny is, no, you know, and what's so funny is, it's like again, Soviet, it's like, sounds like the gulag. We're painting well, it out. Uh, yeah. uh, again, there's a third, uh, uh, there's a third um, story about this uh, told by Ingo Swan, who was the person who helped set up the Army Remote Viewing Program, and he tells the story in his book, Penetration. And he said that he basically had remote viewed, and he told this to me personally and in his book. He said he had personally remote viewed the moon. He, he was, his credibility is such that it was through his work largely. I mean, he was the person who, 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 who brought this to the Stanford Research Institute that the CIA funded the remote viewing program research and then the Army basically established the remote viewing program uh, where the first Army coordinated remote viewers worked. And so Ingo Swan tells the story, told me the story, about how he remote viewed the moon, and he described exactly the same you did, these crystal domes inside a crater. And he said that when he penetrated, again, this is with his mind, this remote viewing, when he penetrated those domes, he said it was like an assembly line. It was like a fact, kind of like a factory, but but very different from any factory you can imagine. And he said one of the entities that was working in there looked up at him. And again, this is a like the force. This is like a psychic channel. And Ingo Swan knew that that person saw him in that channel, and Ingo Swan backed out and closed the session down very quickly. But that, to him, was more frightening than anything. I'm familiar with that one. Uh, I want to say right fast, though, that if people want to um, check out, they could go to my uh, my website, which is kenjohnstonmedia.com, and they they can find all of that. Also, um, if, if they want to talk to me or email with me, I've got an email address. That, um, if you mean to go ahead and put that out there, they can... Go yeah, directly yeah, to me. Yeah. That's uh, I'll make sure. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Ken Johnston Sr. That's SR, all one word, Ken Johnston Sr. at uh, gmail.com. Okay, cool. uh, no, I'll be glad yeah. to go over that. You, you, the, the autobiography covers up to the NASA, and then book number two that's already been out uh, on um, uh, as an ebook, and that's uh, Ken's, uh, Ken's Moon Mission. Uh, these are the mission reports. Each mission, about a week or two after the mission, they would they would release a, a mission report, and I have all the originals that unfortunately have been modified and changed over the last forty five years, and um, so that's called a, a complete journal of all the way from Mercury to Columbia. And, and, and what what does it consist? Of, what does a typical mission report consist of? Is it a multiple page report, basically? Eight hundred and one pages. <laughs> wow. So, it's a lot there, and it, it goes everything from what the objectives were, the missions missions were, how we accomplished those missions. A lot of pictures are from my archive are added into those to to paint a better picture so everybody can see it. Um, that takes care of, of book number two that's already out. Book number three, which will be out real quick, is is my complete archive. Um, it, you know, we were talking about how uh, Richard Hogan made the decision that they needed to get my name public, so I went to the National Press Club in nineteen. 95 once i've been again in 2004 2004 i think it was and so this story i've told everything has been out to the other countries around the world and his his reasoning was the only way to keep you safe is to make you so public that if anything happened to you they'd have to explain so i i kind of think they've been protecting me instead of trying to get rid of me 
And uh, that's why I want to tell everybody else that if they've been keeping quiet, that's the wrong thing to do. You need to come forward with what information you gathered while you were part of this this program. Well, if you're keeping, if they're keeping quiet, is the reason because of national security, or is it deeper, or is it financial? You lose your pension. Is it a corporate secret? Because NASA is not the military. So uh, why are people? Why would anybody keep quiet? Well, your first statement, NASA is not the military. You're wrong. NASA is as falls under the um, the um, federal, the the government military act. So they actually do have control over over NASA, believe it or not. And and we can pull that data up for you later. Um, part of it, there have been people who have. And I'm not saying anything that have died, that have had auto accidents, that have had strange things happen to them to the point where people were afraid and have still been afraid to come forward with things that they've been exposed to. Heard, you know, uh, yes, I had to have a top secret clearance to be able to get in there. Yes, I was present at some of these events that took place that I've talked about. And the only way to, I decided that, you know, is to come out and tell the truth and let the truth be heard. If you can document it and back it up, which I can do. Well, now, in, in the Brookings report, yes, sir. How, how did the Brookings report reach their conclusions about um, the human civilization's inability to handle the truth about extraterrestrial civilizations? One of the uh, analyses that they gave, and I, I read, it's been a long time since I read it, but, um, was an example of, you know, in the Philippine, Filipino islands, when they discovered the uh, Aborigine natives that were so primitive, they were still basically in the Flintstone era. And they would come back every six months or a year later and see how they progressed. And their their societies absolutely crumbled. They ceased, basically ceased to exist because they, they knew that there was a, a human beings that lived in a whole lot better life than what they were living. So mm-hmm. that was the basis of it. Um, in that full report, I'm just giving just a, the caption part of what was said with regards to discovering uh, alien existence. Uh, but they, they do go into detail about how they, they came to that conclusion. Interesting now, enough. It, it, it's so funny because that was 60 years ago. And so um, one of the things that you wonder just in your estimation, because you've been out there for a while now telling the story, and um, NASA itself, didn't they do a report of lunar anomalies of uh, something like 70 years or 75 years? Or, no, I'm sorry. It was 400 years of lunar anomalies. And they were talking about people as far back as colonial New England, talking about lights circling the moon. And um, in the 1920s and 30s, stories of structures on the moon that would appear one day and be gone the next week. So I mean, this is this is stuff that even NASA has talked about. You can you can make it appear that you're you're coming out with all the information and everything else, yet you're keeping what you don't think your society is. It, right now, the United States, Canada, and Great Britain are the only countries that are really keeping all of the UFO records and files and things classified. And uh, Mexico, uh, I was on. Um, uh, science program uh, and everything was translated into Spanish and those countries have all released the majority of all of their UFO files and things are made available to MUFON and some of the other organizations that are looking at it so and even the Pope has now come out and said that he's sure that there's a intelligent life somewhere else in the universe 
but that's a big step for them. Mm-hmm. That, um, yeah, for the Catholic Church, you're right. But then, but then, the the uh, the key part of that statement that the church made, which which always stunned me, was they said that if there are if there are extraterrestrial creatures out there, then they were part of the creation plan, and then they would come under the protection of the church, the auspices of the church, just like human beings. And so, when I read that. It, it struck me that what could the church do? I mean, really, what was their alternative? If extraterrestrial life is found, are they going to say it's not part of creation and deny the basic fundamental dogma of creation? No, they have to embrace it. So on yep. the one hand, it was a stunning statement. On the other hand, it was a statement they had to make. I, I agree. It's, it's, uh, it's sad that our religions, and, and having my one doctorate in, in, in religion, and having studied them, is it? They well, it's actually sadder that whoever backed the Brookings report has decided for all humanity to keep us in the dark. And unlike, let's say, let's say you go back to the Aborigines now, um, the tribe that let's say was broken up and they lost their culture, and you ask the kids sitting around with their iPhones and you know iPads and playing soccer and stuff. Do you wish we had go back to, you know, eating, eating roots and grubs because, you know, you never – in other words, w- let us maybe choose to have a more advanced culture because we can handle it perhaps. Some of us can handle it. Obviously, the upper echelon can handle it because they're being, they're being allowed to handle it. And um, who's, who chooses? Who, you know, that's why I think it's admirable. If you saw something, you didn't just keep it to yourself – and just show it to your buddies, you know, and maybe make a billion dollars in the background. But instead, you know, you're saying perhaps other people should see this. And it's one thing yeah. is I have never never made a single cent out of coming forward with this information. The only thing is I hopefully I'll enough of the books will sell to, to pay for the effort to, to put the data out. Yeah, there. absolutely. And and uh, I'm building a little ebook company, and I will put you in the ebook company if you'd like, and that would be more sales. For sure, okay. because we used to have a little ebook company, and we did really well because people who like one kind of book are interested. You know, we have an audience for your kind of a topic, and putting oh. all that material out is great in an ebook because there's no print, mm. you know, cost. Yeah, now the volume two of my autobiography is going to be out probably in about uh, another month, and then actually there's a, a fifth book which is going to be um, um, oh. Oh, the experiences that I've had that have led me to understand and accept the fact that, you know, we are not alone in this universe and that we have been visited over decades and decades and thousands of years. Um, I think we've reached the point where uh, that we're, as a species on Earth, are about ready to be accepted into, let's call it the, the universal collective intelligence. I don't know. But, uh, well, now, but, but, what were some of those experiences? I, uh, <laughs> that that that's in book number five, but um, you, I can tell you one one particular. Before we before we do, I just want to go back to that room one more time because it's frustrating to think that there's Doctor Page and his and a room and and maybe ten other people and yourself who are somehow privy to the truth about the most important question that a human could wonder about. You look up and you say, oh, and suddenly somebody's getting a picture of the other side of the moon perhaps being utilized by something. And why those 10? Um, that's, that, 
would just drive me crazy because you saw the looks of them. Were they all super rich people? Were they all super intelligent people? Were they all super old people? No, there, there were actually only uh, six or seven others other than Dr. Page and myself, not ten, but uh, they were all Ph.D. scientists. Most okay. Of them, most of them were, were um, geologists and, and um, later became, you know, astrogeology. So they were very highly intelligent and motivated. Um, the reason why I was privy to that, as I said, um, I had been involved with all of it up to getting to the moon, et cetera, and um, I didn't have a, a doctorate degree at the time, no, but I did have um, the, the top-secret clearance. Mm-hmm. And I think that Dr. Page just felt that I was um, qualified, since I had the clearance, to, to be present, and they needed right, some. Right. They and needed was and, and they were not. This was not their first. I guess their first, um, you know, uh, ball game. This they they were used to seeing stuff like this. Would you think? I would say that because the way Doctor Page turned them says, "What do you think of this, boys?" And they all laughed. Such it was an inside joke that they yeah. understood mm-hmm. that, uh, specifically that, that we are not alone. But they didn't. But but the funny thing is that they didn't evidence a sense of fear. Like this was, they took it almost for granted that there was something there that they knew was there. Yes, and and part of it is, it has been asked whether or not our, the big race to get to the moon, now the big race is to get to Mars and to Phobos, even uh, um, doc, uh, Dr. Buzz Aldrin it says we need to get to Phobos because it, it may well be, um, you know, a, a non-natural uh, satellite of, of Mars. And we want to get there and find out if intelligent life was there before it came here to the Earth and find out what technology and advancements might be there. Whoever gets there and gets the information is jumps leaps leaps ahead of the other societies. Would you say that Phobos, getting to Phobos is almost more important than even getting to Mars itself? I I would put it right up at the top of the list, absolutely. Or do you get to Mars first and then to Phobos? Because it's easier to have a base on Mars. But and, and what do you, Dr. Johnson, think about the people who say we have a jump room to Mars already? Have you ever heard that? Yes, I have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess it goes back to the old saying. You know, one person's um, I guess one. How's that go? One person's is, is another person's science. One person's uh, of fiction. Mythology. Science. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, we we come up with ideas. For science fiction, the next thing you know, uh, our science has figured out a way to do that. Now, if they're that far in advanced, and it's it's, uh, we can come up with it in Star Trek and all of our uh, movies and things. I'm not one to say that science of another source may have already found a way to do that. I, I won't say no until I have a chance. Personally, I, my goal has always been to go to Mars, and I still am hoping that. Um, E.T. is going to give me a ride. <laughs> well, there, but there are people right now who are on all the talk show circuits in the paranormal community. And you could check out Carrie Cassidy and Project Camelot, for example. And I believe she has hosted Project Camelot is a kind of um, a movie record. A lot of people get interviewed who who tell incredible stories. And you're supposed to... Watch and decide for yourself. And so within Project Camelot are several people who say that at this moment, and, and Andrew Bishago, Andy Bishago is another one who supports the story that right now the government, the secret government is so advanced that you can get into a little elevator 
in this day and age, like tomorrow, like you just go there and you get into the elevator, the doors close. When they open up, you're on Mars. It's called the jump room to Mars. Right, it's like teleporting to Mars. Right, well, right. yeah, and they're saying they do it routinely, these guys, that it's an existing program that is real. And, and I just wanted, wondered what Dr. Johnston thinks of people who are making money on a story saying it's real right today, now. Uh, I'm open-minded enough to, um, to, to say that it, it's possible that uh, and, until I've had a chance to do it myself, it may be a little bit harder for me to accept, but uh, scientifically, I, I think it's probably feasible. I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be one of the first one to say that it's not. Uh, well, do you think we have a very advanced secret program that puts the NASA missions to shame? I I fully agree with that. Absolutely. Do you do but really? I, I've been so close to it uh, several times that. Wow. Uh, well, okay. What do you mean close to it? Well, as I said, you know, like with Doctor Page and them, uh, close to just knowing that uh, extraterrestrial life or bases already exist on the moon, and uh, I've seen other pictures on Mars that evidence that it looks like there it was or it might still be um, bases still on Mars, and there's. So much stuff going on right now with that uh, airbrushing out and smudging out stuff. It's it's crazy. I don't know why. They're, well, they're, but you get the impression when you saw those domes on the moon and or from um, Page and the others that these were ours or theirs. I To me, I thought it was the most exciting opportunity and that the next day I was going to be able to show the other people there in the world that we had discovered the existence of, of life on the moon, and the only only possible source we had at the time is that we were the only ones that have gone to the moon. So now we're looking at a base, and we've just barely been able to land a lunar module on the surface and walk around for a few hours, but here's a base people living in, in these habitats on the moon. I, I thought that was the most fantastic thing in the world, and we were getting ready to, to tell the whole world that you know we're not alone in the universe. And, uh, well, with somehow, okay, well, then that brings us to Apollo 13. And was Apollo 13, I mean, was that truly an accident? Was that something else? Was that meant to happen? Was there a, re- was there a reason for it, or was it simply just something broke? Well, I, I have uh, the mission reports and a lot of pictures and things that were taken during the Apollo 13 that, that have already been put uh, in the mission reports book that I just published. Um the I'm pretty sure that it was uh, well I can't say that positive. My my first decision would be that it was a mishap. We have a have, same thing with the Columbia, same thing with the Challenger. We get so used to um, thinking we're so successful and so smart, we start taking an advantage. I personally did the the testing of tile repair for the shuttle, wearing spacesuits and and simulating um, zero gravity and. Trying and actually repairing them, we were doing so good with that that um, they chose not to put the the man maneuvering unit, the MMU, and the tile repair kit on board. They could save fifteen hundred pounds, wow. and yet then we wind up uh, with damaged tile. And then they say, "Well, we've been done so good, we'll just take a chance and see if we can back, back Columbia come back safe." And it, of course, we lost. Uh, I knew everybody on that crew except for the uh, the teacher who was part of that crew. So. Um, there, there are parts of the governments and parts, I, I can't say that personally, let's say it appears there is uh, a 
a branch that does not want the rest of the world to know that they're in control or they're way ahead of us. But I know for a fact, you can, you can look at all our advancements in jets and things like that and know that we, we keep them quiet for a long time until we can make them, make them public because we've gone beyond that. One of the things that John Schusler, who was one of the directors of MUFON, I think was the director of MUFON and was, and worked at NASA. He was a high level engineer at NASA. He said flat out to us, that there was a part of NASA, just like there's a part of other branches of the military and the government that are known as special access privilege branches, SAP branches, and that if something anomalous is going to happen or takes place or needs to be discussed, it's only discussed within that small group. So he said there were people that he knew that had special access privilege inside NASA. And when there was an anomaly that had to be addressed, they would be the ones to confab and decide what to do. Well, I think that was a perfect example of what Dr. Page had had me do. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that goes on all the time, I believe. And so um, I want to get back to what you said about your experiences that we are not alone. What were some of those experiences? And you look back over your life and you can look at certain events that took place. When I was basically in the first grade um, in Hart, Texas, a little town of 560 people out in the country, we had a tremendous uh, rainstorm going on. The next morning, a neighbor, a mile and a half away, called my stepdad and said he thought it looked like uh, lightning had hit uh, right out from our house, about 50 50 yards out from our house. Well, we jumped, you know, and put on our boots and raincoats, and my old two older brothers and I, we ran out there. Um, I jokingly say my oldest brother was more sophisticated. He wasn't going to run. My brother Jimmy, you know, I could outrun him, so I was the first one there. And this, I have a picture of, of what looks like the same thing. My mind remembers a big crop circle, and as I get to the circle, and, and I can see all of the stuff smashed down, and on the far side, there's this... I described it, and it would have been a a um, hooping crane, big big bird, and it mm-hmm. looked at me, looked away, and then starts running, it's flapping its wings, gets airborne, and it disappears. Well, I asked my brothers if they saw it, and they say that, no, they didn't see it. And um, uh, that was sort of one. And after that, I started having all kinds of interesting dreams and things throughout my life. And then uh, some of the, the events that have taken place that later on in life that um, some people are trying to get me to come out with book number five, which is my my uh, personal experiencing with um, things that kind of go bump at night. So wow. well, wait till the book's out, and then you can read the rest of it. Okay. Well, then the the, uh, the next thing is uh, that I wanted just to address is the signal that you said came um, at as Apollo seventeen was inserting itself into Earth orbit. Um, what was the nature of that signal, and how did we, I mean, was it in English? Was it, I mean, how did we know that it was a signal from where it was supposed to be coming? Uh, well, I mean, because I didn't hear it personally, but I did talk to some of the technicians that were there on, on NASA that Dad did, and I would have to assume that they heard it in the English language. And, of mm-hmm. course, if you look at, we were, the, we were representing humanity through Apollo, Going to the middle landing, and all the communications was being done in in English. That that would be the logical thing to believe. But I, I, I other than that, I, I wouldn't know. And so, and they, it was confirmed to you 
that that signal originated from the moon. From the direction of the moon, yes. Yeah, that's where I was trying to squeeze my way back in. Can you tell, what, what was the nature of the signal? Was it a sound? Um, was it a mechanical voice? Was it Morse code? No, it was It was actually a voice from what the, the guys told me. It was a voice, but uh, they didn't say whether or not it was mechanical sounding or not. It was just a flat, you know, monotone, straight across statement. And do, do, you, do you know what the words were exactly? The the words, as I recall them, what I was told was, "Do not return. You're not ready." Wow, <laughs> that's so that's so unmilitary and so well, clear. You know, that's almost like what you would say to a uh, like to a scruffy bum. You know, don't mm-hmm. come back until you get cleaned up. <laughs> well, what's so funny? <laughs> you know, what's so funny minute, is that yeah. there were two. What's so funny is there were two other NASA missions on the books, weren't there? I mean, eighteen nineteen. Were 18, on the books, then they were shifted. Eighteen, nineteen, and twenty were on mm-hmm. the books at uh, Grumman in Bethpage, Long Island, where they had lunar modules for eighteen, nineteen, and twenty at various stages of the assembly line to mm-hmm. be be completed. And I'm sure that um, the, the manufacturers of the command module uh, had the same thing. In fact, they they used uh, one of the uh, seventeen, I mean, eighteen, nineteen, or twenty command module to do the Apollo Soyuz. Where we flew a command module into orbit, the Russians flew Soyuz spacecraft, and we rendezvoused and docked together. And it mm-hmm. was to to declare uh, space as um, non-military uh, for you know freedom and relationships between Russia and America. Um, yeah, but during the Soyuz, uh, wasn't there a huge sighting? A was huge there a, incident? A, was there a what? Uh, a, a sighting or an incident of a. The, wasn't there a launch of something that came at it that that there's film of? I, I don't I don't remember the details. That was Don Ecker's one of Don Ecker's bigger bigger stories. No, I think he, um, I think the, the, the best stories we've heard lately is when uh, Dr. Buzz Aldrin came out and he talked about the light that was tracking and following them all the way to the moon, and how he and he and Neil decided they weren't going to say well there's a UFO out there they. They just asked where the SRB was that helped put them in the translunar coast, and um, and what does SRB what does what does SRB mean? I'm sorry. What what does SRB oh, mean? Uh, that's the Saturn Saturn um, booster, uh, the the last part of the three stage rocket that put them oh, on okay, the, the coast of the moon. Okay. And um, it, he said that it it followed and tracked them all the way through, and they were told that oh the SRB would have been several thousands of miles away and they couldn't have wow. seen it. He said, but this one, this one's right there. He's and Buzz Aldrin, he comes out and he says, we would, we would actually have to say it was a UFO, unidentified mm-hmm. flying object that followed him. That's well, pretty strong. Supposedly they used the term Santa Claus, um, in some transmissions, but the, okay. But is there a recording someplace of this go away signal? Do you think, do you think somebody's got a recording? I, I feel very, I hope, that there are people that have copies of these recordings and that they will make them, bring them forward because we, we're yeah. not going to get them. My experience is we're not going to get them from the government because um, unless there were people like myself that just happened to make the decision to 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 decipher the directive. <laughs> as, well, among your among your colleagues, have do you have colleagues that you know are keeping secrets? Do you have acquaintances and friends of friends that used to work there and you know are keeping secrets? Uh, unfortunately, at 73, so many of the people I knew 
were much older than me and they're not around anymore. I'm, I'm just hoping that there are a few. I'm, I'm blessed with the longevity gene of ancestors that have lived over a hundred years. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and, and okay. I saw your, I saw your video, uh, in, uh, application for the, oh, going to Mars, literally going to Mars right. as, and you were suggesting I can do it. You know, you must have loved the Martian, um, recently, the movie. Oh, I, yeah, that was great. I mean, it, although it was based on a premise that was inaccurate, enough pressure from the wind to be able to blow things over, that wasn't valid. But it, it was a great movie, a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. But no, I think that uh, Mars One made a big mistake because they, they're using the, the typical that, you know, the average person is not going to live much past about 80, et cetera. And mm-hmm. here I am at uh, 73, and I'm, I worked my, my 16 year old into the ground today. We were out moving all kinds of panels and, Things, um, well, there is a there's a new uh, science afoot um, called uh, caloric restriction. Caloric restriction works perfectly to expand the uh, life uh, the life sentence of uh, every kind of creature, from fruit flies all the way up to monkeys, and it it will double or treble. The, if you restrict your calories, you literally knock it down to 600 calories or less a day of very high quality uh, calories, but you keep it very, very low. And right. as a result, your body just doesn't have as much work to do. It doesn't process as much stuff. And supposedly, you'll be lean, but you will live a very um, – to triple our uh, lifespan would make it 300 and, or uh, three, three times 120 would be 3,600. And it's working on monkeys, but again, the research takes a really long time with the monkey lifespan. So, I think they also made an announcement that the, the human being that's going to live past 200 years has already been born. And, of course, my hand went up and said, why not me? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you probably you probably know that 120 is supposedly the the um, you know the expiration date on the model that we're currently living in. But if you go out on the internet. There are so many things that that suggest there's there are ways to enlo- uh, enlarge one's potential, like this fellow who um, he's called uh, he's called the Iceman, and he believes in kind of like um, deep breathing to the point where you literally um, you know when you become lightheaded what what is it called it's um not when you stuff yourself with oxygen where you flood your body with oxygen. So you that your body can dizzy. process extreme events without um, injuring but itself. He's, and he's right. been scientifically uh, measured quite a lot as a guy who can hold his breath now for seven or so minutes. He can do all kinds of things with this little simple technique. And if you try it, and I'm, I'm, I'm zoning on his name. I've been talking about him for the last couple of weeks. He was Wim, Finnish or Danish or something. He's called the Iceman. And just type yeah. in W-I-M is his first name, Wim Rolf or something. Uh, he's Danish. And he all by himself is almost showing what she looks like and perhaps how we can stop the blueprint that says 120 is the limit. And I bet the astronauts, I bet the astronauts know more already because I bet they study that. that, Another thing which they did come out with that I I think is interesting is that, you know, our subconscious mind has an awful lot to do with the way we are. And um, they were talking about people that, they go around and say, oh, well, my Aunt Bessie died when she was 65. I probably will, too. Well, you know, they probably will. You, no. put a, you, just, you just gave your body a pattern to follow. 
That's right. And that's my yeah. case. All my life, I've been saying I'm going to live at least to 180. So, oh, I'm nice. Gonna- Nice. So you, so you're barely, you're barely, you know, you're barely. You're still a teenager. A teenager. Yeah. He's still a young whippersnapper. Well, folks, you go when when you go to. um, Yeah, when you go to Ken's site, I, I, um, I was going to use for the photo one of these stills from his little film. He puts, he has a little audition film, and like any, you know, reality show, you you now give an audition film, and it's a lot of fun to meet Ken Johnston because, um, you know, you're wearing a little jumpsuit. There you go. Yeah, and and at the at the end, it gives um, uh, it's on the screen too little a uh, set of time. It's a picture of your of yourself on one side, and I think yourself in an astronaut outfit on the other side. Uh-huh. I think is that uh, right? So Does that ring a bell? Yeah, they they go to that uh, my website. They click on those pictures um, and go into a whole file of them um, all the way back and. Uh, it's been it's been fascinating ride, and I'm I'm nowhere near the end of it. At least I don't plan on it being. Well, not with that well, many books to write. <laughs> well, with the Chinese trying to get back to the moon, or trying to get to the moon in the first place, with a uh, manned mission, and other countries, do you think that they will have they will receive the same response that we did after Apollo seventeen? I no, I don't think that they will. I I sincerely believe that overall, the the human society on Earth, if we'll just wake up for it, the majority of us are ready for recognition. And uh, as far as the the whole in, interplanetary intelligence uh, association, for lack of something better to call it, that um, it, it, the time is now. And, and well, people coming forward. Yeah, but do they out. know that about us already? Angel, that's, do you remember? Do you remember um, the uh, name of that little film, the Mona Lisa? Apollo the Mona Lisa 20? EB. Yes, the Mona Lisa Apollo EB. 20? Yeah, Ken. Actually, it's funny you bring that up, Nancy, because I was just thinking about asking about that. Uh, Ken, have you seen that video that's been on YouTube for the last couple of years about what looks like uh, an alien found on the moon, and they've dubbed it the Mona Lisa EBE? Uh, supposedly, it was found on one of the craters. Uh, there was a ship. Uh, they had been uh, looking at it for about a couple of years, and they finally went back on the Apollo mission, and they went inside of it and found two bodies: one decapitated, one full form you know and it was well preserved obviously it's in space and uh i mean the video is pretty legit looking have you seen the video no i haven't but you know our technology is uh, in in film making and reproductions and things like that is, is advanced so far from what we did back during apollo that uh, i you know well actually you probably will like to see this you want to google yeah. the mona lisa alien because um alan the other guy on Skywatchers, has i believe an uncle Mm-hmm. who is was in the space program and said that the module or the background, the, the set decoration, whatever it is, in that movie is it's shockingly... Very legit. Yep. Yeah, so you might. So your eye would certainly catch that, and maybe you could. Um, Not only that, and part of the video, if you really pay close attention, you could see the astronaut's yep. face. Oh, somebody will send me a link to it, and then now I get yes. a chance. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link tonight. a bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that'd Excellent. be cool, and then and then your comments would be quite quite welcome for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. What yeah, is fascinating to me is that the, the story I've been telling now since '95 uh, has been backed up by two other people that I've never met. That's right. We, we back up each other's stories in reality, I guess. Yeah, and more need to come forward. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Great. Uh, 
Okay, so we are at the end of our yes. show, and I wanted to say that next week we have the uh, Illumi- the illuminated Ken Sherry All is right. going to be our guest. So we have a guest. Thank you, Danny. He's I'm telling you, Danny. Danny's a guy to watch. Yep, he's, um, a he's been helping. Producer but, extraordinaire. Yeah, and so uh, we'll put the Mona Lisa Alien link up on I guess the Facebook page is where we stick stuff. The Future Theater Facebook page. But yeah, I'll least, post it there for for you yeah. in a minute. Yeah, thank we you. Have to, yeah. And that's what and we do. So I, I, I want to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Ken Johnston Sr., um, for joining us tonight, for sharing his uh, 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 the story. And is there a junior, f- by the way? There certainly is. He's um, quite a quite an individual himself with um, Microsoft. He's he's way up there in management and doing advanced uh, studies for advanced computer systems for the future. So, ah, sounds excellent. like future theater material there. <laughs> well, good luck. Well, good luck to him. Uh, congratulations. Yep. So, um, we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Good night. Burns, and we are saying good night from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Sulbury Village, Pennsylvania, on Future Theater, on PSN Radio, and the Dark Matter Digital Network. Thank you to Dr. Johnston, and to everybody, stay warm if you're on the Northeast, and we will see you next week with my old friend from MUFON, Ken Sherry. Good night, everybody. Have a wonderful week.